Cancel South Park. That hashtag cancel South Park. Yeah. You didn't strike me as a South Park watcher. Oh, we've got we've got text. That's a whole separate podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hello everyone. Welcome back to episode 181 of Bourbon Pursuit. My name is Kenny, and I want to send a special message to say I hope that everybody had a fantastic holidays with their family, opening bottles, sharing bourbon amongst friends and family, and just hope you had a Merry Christmas all around. And now that 2018 is coming to a close, I hope it was very fruitful. A lot of dreams were made, and I hope that you're making plans for 2019 or making some New Year's resolutions because it is time to start ringing in the new year with 2019. So happy new year or happy early new year to everybody that's out there because this is going to be out before next week's, which will be the first one of 2019. So happy new year to everybody that's out there. Maybe you should make a, uh, a New Year's pledge to start spreading the good word of Bourbon Pursuit out there. I know we'd appreciate it. Now, just some more news that was happening with inside the realms of bourbon. This week, there was yet another fake Pappy Van Winkle spotting in the secondary market. It wasn't the first time. It's not going to be the last time. This just means that it's time for another public service announcement that you need to either break your old bottles or give them to somebody that is going to take the time to make them into candles, drill holes in them, to turn them into lamps. I don't know whatever kind of craft or projects that you plan on wanting to do with them, but just don't be the person that sells their empties on eBay. I know it feels good to sell a lot B for 15 bucks, but it's not worth it because that's going to get turned around. It's going to pretty much ruin somebody else's Christmas or holiday or birthday or whatever they're gifting it for. So just don't be a part of it and don't forget that. We have to send a special shout out to our friends over at Breaking Bourbon for featuring our interview with them as we talk about our private label pursuit series. And go ahead, go check it out. It's, the link is going to be inside of the show notes but it gives you an idea of where our vision is, of where we're gonna take this, how we're distributing it, how we're trying to take on a hundred year old business of not going through distributors and trying to figure out how do we service an online first marketplace. So this is really where we're trying to break new grounds and try to do something new and unique uh, versus something that is very traditional. So go and check it out. You can get it in the show notes or you can go visit breakingbourbon.com. Now, today's guest, Larry Cass, first made an appearance back on episode 167. It was during the Bourbon Hall of Fame red carpet event where Fred pulled him aside and really just started asking him a few questions. For me, this was my first introduction to Larry and Fred really shined a light on his accomplishments throughout his career. You're gonna hear a lot of cool stories that are gonna be coming from a small family-run operation that was Heaven Hill that just had a few brands that then morphed into hundreds, and this is from the late 80s until today. He's also gonna talk about his time as the brand manager for Rittenhouse Rye, and this was during that epic run or the bottles that we now come to see that are the Rittenhouse Rye 21, 23, and 25-year bottlings. So you can understand how those came into existence, as well as we're going to touch on pretty much a hot subject, especially for people that are from Kentucky or travel to Kentucky looking for those hidden gems that are on the bottom shelf, and that is the disappearance of the Heaven Hill six-year bottled and bond. We're also going to touch on his original partnership 
with the Kentucky Distillers Association or the KDA before that was even a real thing. This is going to be a real piece of history and we wish Larry a bunch of years of relaxation in his retirement for years to come. Once again, we need to send a special thank you to Barrel Bourbon, who is partnering with us to bring you this podcast. I've had a chance to go out and try the new 15-year that was voted as Fred's Bourbon of the Year and their new Batch 17. They're both awesome. They're both delicious. So go and get yourself a bottle if you haven't yet. Now, with that, you've got Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. As we move into 2019, I noticed a very troubling trend, one that I'd hoped I'd never see. Bourbon geek confidence is at an all-time low. First, a bourbon geek is somebody who treats bourbon like their number one hobby, putting it on an equal playing field as football, baseball, or if you like it, doll collecting or building model ships. In other words, bourbon's the geek's truest hobby. We wait in long lines, argue over store picks, and find ourselves entrenched in a never-ending debate over something stupid. That's us. For the past decade, our confidence has slowly dwindled. We've seen age statements drop like flies. I remember very old Barton, Jim Beam Black, and Elijah Craig age statements leaving and breaking bourbon geek hearts everywhere, including mine. And then came the celebrities such as Mila Kunis and the all right, all right, all right, Matthew McConaughey. And forming geeks, they matter little in comparison to the new kid on the block impressed by a pretty face. You've also came across marketing hype, backpedaling, and sometimes untruthful distillers and changing product slowly chipping away at customer loyalty and confidence. But there's one factor above all. That is putting whiskey lovers in the depression pits, and that's price. We've seen $25 products become $40, while limited editions, once $50, break the $200 threshold. And you have liquor stores getting their allocations, tripping, tripling their price well into the thousands. To add insult to injury, even if you have $300 to burn for an overpriced above MSRP for Rose's limited edition, you may not even find it. And so, many bourbon geeks find themselves searching for something affordable, only to be standing in an aisle looking at the basic everyday bottle of Whitford Reserve or Maker's Mark. Thus, the confidence begins to dip. And if the disgruntled bourbon geek leaves, there are 20 more to take their place and willing to spend whatever on the shiny new-to-them bottle. This is the new bourbon reality. Prices will continue to rise, and new people We'll pay them. The question is, will you, the bourbon geek, stick around? And that's this week's Above the Char. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at Fred Minnick. That's at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite 
at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring green for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back to an episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here recording on site today at the Heaven Hill marketing offices here in Louisville, which I always love coming here because I don't have to actually go all the way out to Bardstown if I need to uh, to talk to somebody. It is nice to, to be here. So you don't like Bardstown? What's up with oh, that? Well, now, now you're putting words in my mouth. I did not say that. I'm just saying that it, it does make the trip <laughs> a little bit easier to go 15 minutes instead of 45. Well, and if you get hungry, you can go to Whole Foods right down the street. And yeah. you know what's funny is like Maker's Mark just moved their offices right over here. So I've, I've been wondering if... Uh, you know, if they've got like spy cameras on each other and, and like, uh, you know, sonar, like listening in on strategies. We just, we just meet in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah there you go. They're all, everybody's all good friends around here. But, you know, our, our guests sort of chimed in there and I kind of want to talk them up a little bit before before we start talking about this, because I, I had really never known about Larry up until we had uh, you were invited me to the. Um, uh, the Hall of Fame banquet, and we were there, you had actually stopped Larry coming in and you said, Larry, let's talk for a minute. Let's get you on camera. And that was actually the first time that unbeknownst to him, he was actually on the podcast. And you were probing him some of the questions. And I was just like, Larry's he's a, he's got a good personality. He's got a lot of history. And it's one of the names that I had really never been um, accustomed to. Well, the fact that you don't, you, you previous to that, you didn't know who Larry was 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 a, is a testament to how good of a job he did because his his role in lar- was largely uh, being kind of like a communications director and those that role they don't like to be known they kind of want to be behind the scenes uh, they will occasionally get quoted but they're the ones who are really you know prepping their distillers prepping um, their CEOs for for journalists but they're also giving background on stuff. And the thing about Larry and my career in, in covering this business is that a lot of people in that role had a very minimum understanding of, of whiskey. 
and Larry always stood out as a guy that could tell you everything. And the reason why he could tell you everything was because he was very hands-on uh, at Heaven Hill, you know, throughout his career. And I, I don't think you can work at Heaven Hill without knowing 50 things, though. But there's something special about Larry, the way he tells stories, uh, the connections he has with some of the most iconic people. And, you know, he gave Parker Beam's eulogy at his funeral and um, brought me to tears um, at, at Parker's funeral. And so you don't get to that level just by just being a guy who introduces reporters to distillers. Larry's special to this business. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, uh, do we pad your ego enough there? <laughs> right, you're right. I don't know if my, there's going to be enough room for my head here anymore, but no, that's right. <laughs> so, so let's go ahead and introduce our guest. So today we have Larry Cass on the show. So Larry, he said that he's done it all here at Heaven Hill. He's done PR. He's done brand management. He's done legal. It's hard to find a lot of the jobs that are behind the scenes that he hasn't had some point in doing. And he's also out of, he's, he's heading out the door too, really, really soon. And so we were glad that we were able to uh, do this interview before his retirement to be able to kind of capture his story and the relationships he's built and really kind of share this with the, the the bourbon world as well. So Larry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Great to be here. And I think it's, it's best to start this at the very beginning. Um, so talk about before coming into Heaven Hill, like did you actually have a fascination with whiskey or spirits or anything like that beforehand, or do you just have to kind of grow into it? Well, it would probably make a better story if I told you I did, um, <laughs> but but I won't lie. I don't lie. So, um, no, I um, I actually moved to Louisville from New York um, for lifestyle reasons more than anything, and I was in marketing and advertising in New York and um, continued when I got down here. Um, I took a position with an ad agency. It's a, a fairly well-established ad agency in Louisville. And right about the time when I joined them, Heaven Hill did um, a fairly large acquisition um, as a result of Glenmore uh, Distillers kind of being folded into UD at the time, now Diageo. Um, they divested a number of brands. Heaven Hill bought a bunch of those brands and really kind of changed the um, – the company a lot. They just broadened their portfolio a lot. And at that time, Heaven Hill um, put their ad, their ad account up for review and the agency that I was with won the account. So um, after a little while, my hook or crook, I ended up supervising the account. <laughs> so then I started to learn a whole hell of a lot more about whiskey at that point um, and ran the account for about three years at the ad agency and then got the opportunity to come over and join the company in 1998. And the ad agency world going over to the client side is always kind of a dream. So, uh, and, and it's a great company. And, and I, so I jumped the opportunity to do that in 1998. When I joined, um, there were three of us in the brand management department. There was um, the director of marketing who hired me, um, and she she handled all the white goods and sweet goods, and then she hired me to handle all the brown and aged goods. So I was brown and aged, and she was white and sweet. And um, uh, we had one person that helped us out at the time. So there were three of us in the marketing department. That was 1998. And here we are in 2018. And I think we have 45, 46 people in the marketing department, something like that. So mm-hmm. it's been, it's changed a lot in the, in the intervening years. So. so were you doing the job of 45 people back then? Yes, I was. I was <laughs> yeah, no, no um, there was a little less to do back then, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, I mean, 
the the company was was different back then. I mean, it was yeah. um, it wasn't quite such an outward facing company. It was uh, you know we kind of attended our garden, didn't do a whole lot beyond that. We were obviously always a big player in the American whiskey business, but since that since the time that I joined the company, I mean, my God, we've had huge acquisitions. Just the company has just changed in a million different ways. We've had a whole other generation of ownership come into place in the company. And um, so, uh, you know, the differences between the company now and when I joined are, are remarkable. So there was one thing that I still wanted to get out of you here. And when was that first time that you you found a, a knack for the, the, the brown and aged goods? Did, when you got here, they say like, Here's your first bottle of Evan Williams. Like, get used to it. Like, how how did? No, I mean, you know, I certainly knew. I, I certainly drank bourbon before I I moved to Kentucky. I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up in. This is an occupational liability. I shouldn't talk about this, but I grew up in Connecticut. Um, and uh, you know, my first associations with bourbon were always kind of. This is probably no. It's okay. Everybody said it. You're right. Your they, first associations with bourbon are warm in a styrofoam cup outside a Charlie Daniels concert was kind of my first recollection of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I went to college and uh, you know I always liked whiskey. Um, uh, and you know, when you moved to Kentucky, even in 1998, um, obviously there was a uh, you know still a, a kind of a nascent bourbon culture here and not quite the way it is right now, but in Bardstown in particular, obviously it was very much the kind of meat and potatoes of the whole town. So, um, so, I mean, I, I always liked the product. What I really came to love when I, when I first got here and started in the industry was just the industry itself, the people, I mean, you know, it was a different world back in 1998. I mean, it wasn't quite <laughs> what it is now. Um, but the people that I met, um, many of whom had been in the industry for decades, even back then, just made a great impression on me. These were just, it was a great community and interesting who really, business. Who really stood out for you? Well, Parker was the first one that stood out, I guess, because yeah. uh, he was the first one I met. But, I mean, that was back when, um, uh, you know, the bourbon world was so much smaller and, and Parker, you know, obviously was very close with his relatives at Beam. And so I got a ch- plenty of chances uh, to, to meet Booker and, and Fred back then, who kind of just stood by his dad's side most of the time, um, you know, Elmer. And I mean, they were all around back then. And that was just the very beginning when when we were starting to take these guys to New York, to Las Vegas, at least Parker and some of those guys. I mean, Booker kind of, you know, had gotten out a little bit more because of the small batch collection. But I took Parker for the first time to New York, for the first time to Las Vegas, um, you know, to these big whiskey shows that never existed before we really started. So it was always, for me, I remember back, it kind of was this sociological kind of um, experiment where we had these master distillers who had been working 40, 50 years in the business, never never saw themselves as rock stars. Most of, a lot of them still don't see them. The ones that are left still don't see themselves as rock stars. And, you know, we put them in this ballroom and all of a sudden the doors opened up and, you know, all these people come in and start genuflecting at their feet. And um, it was, it was a, it was an interesting experience. They still kind of couldn't quite get it. I remember Parker kept saying to me, don't these people have jobs, which always <laughs> interested me a little bit. I mean, it was just a mindset that I've been doing this for 40 or 50 years. Nobody gave a crap about what I did for 40 or 50 years for all intents and purposes. I was a master distiller. I did it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, um, and now all of a sudden, 
everybody really is interested in what I'm doing. And there was a sense of almost bewilderment amongst the the, the old timers when this first started happening. But uh, the sons got used to it pretty quickly. But mm. the fathers, I think. They don't know what it's like to not be in the spotlight at this point. Kind of, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, they, these were guys that just fascinated me. I remember talking to... Um, Years ago, when I first kind of started to realize what these guys were, you had this kind of guild of guild, this, these artisans, these craftsmen who did what they did, not because of the adulation and the you know rock star aspect of it, but because a this is what they were taught to do and had been doing most of their lives. You know, they had this work ethic. This was just this is what I do. I I'm, I make whiskey, and the whiskey doesn't take time off, so I have to look at it. You know, I have to pretty much be around it all all the time, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And and they they just had this tremendous work ethic. I mean, Parker could never understand how people would not work hard. He he, he it, it literally just drove him crazy if people would goof off, if people weren't doing their job right. He just didn't get it because they came from this work ethic, you know, that, that just what you, this is what you do. This is what you're supposed to do. And, uh, it was a very different mindset. It was cool. <laughs> it was a very cool mindset. So, so I kind of want rewind it back just a little bit, um, <clears throat> back to 98 here when you, when you first came in and, and what were, what, what was, what was really the, uh, the marketing lifestyle like back then for a lot of these brands? Because today it's, it's much different. Evan Williams is an MLB sponsor. You guys have got <laughs> Um, one of your Blackheart Rums is a sponsor for UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was not happening back in '98. What was what was brand management and advertising like back then? Um, well, it, I mean, as you would imagine, um, it was you know it was on a more limited basis. You know, when I first started, man, I mean, Evan Williams was our flagship brand, continues to be our flagship brand, and. and um, but you know, whereas you, as you point out now, we're we're in, you know the World Series in Major League Baseball and all over a lot of uh, major um, uh, media buys and things like that. Back then, we basically ran little black and white ads in regional editions of Golf Digest. I remember regional editions of Newsweek. Um, so uh, it was regional. I mean, that's that's one telling thing was the fact that we would. You know, back then, most of your business, most of your your bourbon business was in the Southeast. So we would run in Southeast regional editions of a lot of magazines and basically, you know, not even worry about the rest of the country. Um, And, and, you know, that was that really back then was fishing where the fish were. Um, But I was fortunate enough to really join the company at about the time when that whole landscape was changing. I mean, we had introduced our first single barrels two years before then. Beeman introduced a small batch collection about nine or 10 years before then. So, I mean, these, you know, these super premium whiskeys were really starting to catch on literally as I joined the company. So, um, so it was all changing really. Um, and within three or four years, you know, it, it, it really, the, the, the whiskey world had changed a lot. We weren't, um, we weren't limited. Our marketing efforts weren't limited to basically mass media advertising anymore. We were doing a lot more events. We were doing a lot of the whiskey shows that were starting to happen. 
Um, we all had continuity clubs, basically continuity programs, clubs that we were all starting up if we didn't have them then. Um, it was the very beginning. I mean, it, it, you know, <laughs> I, I, I won't say it was the beginning of blogs and, and those types of things, <laughs> but, but certainly birds of a feather were starting to flock together back then. And, and certainly the technology that followed made it much easier for, for that to happen. So, I mean, it was really just this, you know, incredible transitional time in the business where, not only was the product itself kind of starting to undergo a renaissance and become more, uh, much more popular, but the means that people had to kind of follow their passions were also starting to change a lot. So it was just a fascinating time and kind of to see what's happened in the, in the whiskey world um, between 1998 and now is, is remarkable. I mean, so. Mm-hmm. so talk a little bit more about your role as a brand manager in some of these uh dark and brown spirits that you you were talking about. Um, so you owned all of them at that point, right? You were saying, what, 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 all, what all brands were there? Because, I mean, we got Evan, today we've got Evan Williams. Hold on, we have a very short amount of time for this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, just, yeah, I know people. Evan Hill has a yeah. lot of brands. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of my favorite, well, that was one of my favorite lines that I hear from a writer is, oh, yeah. I want to review all your whiskeys. And that's when I get a good chuckle about like, that. I said, okay, I'll get you, yeah, we'll, get you a bottle of mixed Scrooges. You can write that up. Um, but, um, I actually managed not only the American whiskey portfolio, which it then was, yeah, I mean, it was it was a little bit more, not quite as many brands as we have now, but basically the uh, same core brands. Um, back then, we actually also had, um, we were uh, agents for um, Scotch whiskeys. We imported uh, some nice single malts, um, Irish whiskeys. We were the first ones that actually did business with, with Cooley, uh, now oh. Teeling. Um, so we imported their whiskeys originally. Um, so I managed those brands as well. Um, I also managed tequilas as well. So literally, if it was brown and aged, I got it. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, I did have the opportunity to kind of cut my teeth on, um, you know, a broader uh, uh, category perspective than just American whiskey, though, obviously, um, you know, American whiskey, as we always say, is kind of the heart and soul of Heaven Hill and remains, remains that way. But um, and really, it was... Uh, it was a great opportunity for me to work on other whiskeys um, because yeah, you learn a lot just about the whiskey world, the differences between the whiskeys, and, and certainly, um, you know, you can see what how the kind of story arc of Scotch and Irish whiskey has developed. And, you know, they were always kind of light years ahead of the bourbon world, maybe not so anymore. But um, so it was a really good opportunity to kind of see how the other whiskeys market themselves, how they organize themselves from a trade perspective. And and uh, so um, so I worked on all those brands and um, uh, but, you know, whiskey, American whiskey at that time, obviously, was really, really just really, really catching on a lot. And so um, we were doing a lot of new product development. We were doing a lot of kind of um, outreach to consumers so that it it really, uh, there was just so much going on at that time. So, you know, my brand management at that time was, like I said, it was, it was keeping a lot of balls in the air, but I would say we didn't have probably the the depth or breadth of marketing programs that we have now, particularly with obviously social media and the way it's it's kind of changed the whole landscape now. So, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I didn't do anything different than a brand manager does now. You kind of figure out what is going to you know uh, make your consumers interested. In and you were instrumental in pushing forward 
arguably the great one of the greatest sets of older older rides in in the last hundred years. Uh, Tell us about about the story of of those older written houses and how you brought those to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I mentioned that this was a kind of a really um, um, kind of a seminal time in how bourbon was changing, and and definitely I was there when the whole rye world was was turned on its ear. Um, when I joined the company, we had you know, we'd had two rye brands, Pikesville and Renton House. You know, there were really three of us that made rye back then. Buffalo Trace, Buffalo Trace started to make rye about that time, but really it was Beam and Wild Turkey and us were, were the only ones that really mashed rye. And, you know, back then it was, um, as I like to say, it was a moribund category to say the least. You know, if you would go into a bar... <clears throat> They would often have a bottle of maybe old Overholt somewhere behind the bar, somewhere a dusty bottle of old Overholt. But I mean, there was very little interest in rye at that point. And by the time I started, 98, 99, 2000, the um, bourbons had the kind of specialty bourbons, single barrel, small batches, extra age bourbons had kind of really started to engage consumers' um, attention. And the kind of quest for something new along with a lot of bartenders who took a very, very serious interest in rye and the historical cocktail kind of role that it had started to create some interest in rye whiskey. And, um, and you know, the three of us that made it, I, I remember back then we would make, we would mash rye one day in the fall and one day in the spring. And that gave us more than enough rye that we needed for the entire year. And, um, and I, I, I would imagine the other the other distilleries didn't make a whole lot more than that. But um, in the space of about six months, um, I actually remember doing a a, um, a panel. It was in 2003, I think, right before Whiskey Fest New York. Um, and Whiskey Magazine had put together a panel. No, I'm sorry, uh, Malt Advocate. What yeah. was Malt Advocate? Don't get those two mixed That's up. That's right. What was, <laughs> what was then Malt Advocate, um, uh, what is now um, Whiskey Advocate, um, and they put a panel together um, to discuss kind of rye and and what was happening with rye. It was a fascinating panel, actually. It was um, it was Jimmy Russell. It was Fritz Maytag who had come out with his old Potrero not too long before then. Um, it was Henry Price. Um, it wow. was a, a guy who had been with Beam for about three weeks at the time, named Bernie Lubbers. Um, <laughs> never heard of the guy who didn't say very much at the time. Is that the only time I think I've ever heard Bernie not say much? Um, and we we basically John Hansel and Lou Bryson talked to us just about kind of what was going on with the rock category. It seemed to be getting hot at the time, and why was that, and what was going on. And you know, shortly thereafter. Um, you know, the three of us that, well, four of us at that time that made traditional rye, um, uh, you know, the kind of 51%, the Kentucky style rye, um, basically, you know, it was how it became very, very hard to find our products out there. We, we never had that much in, in distribution to begin with, and it didn't take um, a whole lot of kind of uh, prodding on the part of bartenders and interested consumers to basically take all the stock that we all had out in the market pretty quickly. Of course, we started to make it more than two days a year, but we can make it as quickly as we want. We just can't age it any quicker, obviously. So so you had the situation where there was this kind of shortage in rye for a while there. And and um, and interestingly enough, at that time, because there was a shortage in rye, that was the time when 
what I referred to at the time as the, the blending rise, kind of American blending rise, which were mostly MGP type stuff and Canadian blending rise, which were not the traditional kind of 51% um, uh, Kentucky style rye, kind of got their opportunity there because there was a shortage of rye and they there was this rye whiskey available. It wasn't exactly like the traditional rye whiskey, but it was certainly um, good whiskey. And uh, so you had this very interesting phenomenon where this kind of Canadian whiskey and, and American non-traditional rye whiskey kind of came in and, and uh, it was just everybody wanted rye at that time and it was not much of it around. Of course, now we all make it. I think we make it every uh, at least once a month where we're mashing. Mm-hmm. Right so we're making it at least six times more than we were back then. Um, but at about um, that was about 2005, I think, um, we... Um, we'll take a step back. We we and most of our competitors um, have bulk bourbon contracts with our distributors. It's a fairly traditional thing in the industry nowadays, whereby our distributors will basically basically they buy the the whiskey in bulk as it goes into the barrel. It's like a future, and they own the whiskey. We age it for them when we dump it. They get it, and any discrepancy between the cost that they're going to get it at will go into an advertising fund. That's traditionally how it works. And this is something that's been happening in the bourbon business for many years. We actually pioneered it back slightly after World War II, but it's something that everybody does now. We actually had um, a bulk rye contract with, not surprisingly, our our Maryland distributor. And um, we noticed this was kind of back in the days before we had radio RFID tags at all our barrels and we kept everything in ledger books and we were known to lose track of barrels every <laughs> once in a while back then. But they started to notice that we had a number of aged rye barrels that had kind of were starting to build up. And the story there was that these were basically barrels that that belonged to our Maryland distributors in the bulk deal, but they did not dump because they didn't need them at the time. So we realized we had about a hundred barrels of whiskey with that at the time, I think by the time we first discovered it, it was probably 19 or 20 years old. And fortunately for us, it was at low storage and it was really good. So we kind of said to them, hey, you know, kind of 100 barrels of this. You guys, if you don't want it, we'll be happy to buy it back from you. So that's what we did. It was kind of an interesting little um, kind of microcosm of the rye world that was starting to become so popular but the distributors kind of, did, you know, they hadn't caught on at that point. Maybe. Well, they. I mean, they were the ones that they're the ones that actually are 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 Drives send, sending the bottles out to retail. So certainly that they, they didn't. It's not like they were ignorant that where I was getting hot hot at the time. But basically, they they didn't have need for these barrels at the time. So so we bought these barrels back and we did three releases of them, um, about thirty three barrels each uh, in. Of a 21-year-old, and then two years later, 23-year-old, and, and two years later, 25-year-old. And, um, you know, they were, there were some of the earliest kind of super premium rides that were around. Um, they were outstanding. I, I remember um, Jim Murray in his Whiskey Bible, I, I had this kind of running joke with him where he maintained that if he was going to review a single barrel, in order to accurately do that, he would have to review every barrel. So he <laughs> he actually asked me, like, can you send me all the single barrel samples from Evan Williams single barrel, which, of course, at that time was, I don't know, we dumped maybe three, four hundred barrels a year. Yeah, I was like, get out of here. It's not going to happen. Three hundred samples. <laughs> but this I was like, hey, wait a minute, this is my opportunity maybe to do this. So so I sent him 
samples of all 30 some odd barrels of each dump and damned if he didn't review every single barrel in his whiskey bible he's got like four pages of literally every barrel he reviewed um so it was just it was really um to my mind kind of a good little um kind of uh summation of what happened to the rye world in the space of about four years where um it went from something that people didn't have a whole lot of interest to to people having enough interest where they bought pretty much all the stock that was out there out from underneath uh the market and um and then some other types of rye had the opportunity then to come in and start to to um make their name and make a name for themselves and and uh and again, you know, we kind of had the opportunity to release these super premium rise and you don't see them around very much anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. every once in a while you see a bottle here and there. You, I've been able to buy a few here. Yeah, now. you don't see them around yeah. very much anymore. We never did much to begin with. And now, of course, with a, a fairly accurate, uh, active secondary market, they're, they're, they're pretty high. What do you think of the secondary market? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you know, let me put my government affairs hat on. You know, I mean... Um, <laughs> We're, we're trying our best. Uh, you know, we we worked hard with a lot of different entities um, in the trade and in government to get a vintage spirits bill passed um, that creates a opportunity for a legal secondary market. So, um, you know, I mean, I guess my answer here in front of the camera and everything was I, I my preference would be that would people would go through the the legal secondary the proper channels that has been created for it yeah. in response to the demand for it. So um, I'm not sure that, that that's going to happen. But um, but, you know, I guess I would file an underdrized problem to have at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. eh, it's nice that people want. You know, fine. It amazes me. I'll say this when I go on something and, do you, I, see, do you and all, I see somebody wanting to sell a bottle of 1987 175 plastic JTS Brown. It just it amazes me. Do, do you do you all go on there to study it, use it as market data? Um, I mean, a little bit. I mean, you, you, you kind of want to see what's going on there. Um uh, so we do, uh, yeah, I mean, we, 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 look and see what's going on, what people are interested in, what prices, um, what, what prices things are getting. Um, we also just, you know, kind of use some of those social media things as kind of market, uh, intelligence, market research mm-hmm. more than once. I've probably, um, pissed off a lot of consumers because I've seen somebody post something about a ridiculously low price for one of our brands and, I'm like the guy who like raises his hand and says, teacher, you forgot to assign homework because I get on and I say, why are we selling Elijah Craig for 16 bucks in Wisconsin? That's We should be selling it that cheap. That's not good for the brand. So so we use it for that too. Is that is that a little bit as to why, you know, going on to that, like something's too cheap is that, or inexpensive, is that why we saw the into our beloved Heaven Hill bottled and bond six-year-old? <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. 
Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award winning 24 7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. That's big. We should be selling it that cheap. That's not good for the brand. So, so we use it for that too. Is that is that a little bit as to why you know going onto that like something's too cheap is that or inexpensive? Is that why we saw the into our beloved Heaven Hill bottled and bond six year old? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, that is extremely good whiskey. That, um. You know, and I know people love this brand, but it, it, it was difficult for us in this world to kind of justify giving away six-year-old hundred-proof whiskey at the price that, and and creating problems in terms of stock and supply for our other brands. So, um, you know, look, uh, uh, Heaven Hill has and always will, I think, have a pretty good position as somebody that comes out with a number of of fairly priced products. We've always had that reputation and we'll continue to do so. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, we're not going to cut off our nose despite our face. So um, I think uh, Bernie always says it. He goes, this is the bourbon business, not the bourbon charity business. Yeah. I mean, and at the end that. of the day, that's kind of the way it is. I mean, you know, if that, if that whiskey gets shunted into Evan Williams or gets shunted into Elijah Craig, I would argue that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world from a consumer standpoint, because you're still getting, really good whiskey at a really good price. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, demand planning, the, the whole barrel inventory thing, when I started, it was, it was much less exact science than it is right now. But I can tell you that something that all of us, we all can have a million spreadsheets and look at all of our data. It's in an exact science at best. You, you never know what your yields are going to be. You never know exactly, uh, you know, what's going to happen there. So, um, so, uh, you know, it was something that I think is, was a wise move for us to make. So you, you're one of your primary jobs over the years was dealing with, with writers, myself included. Um, and I've, I've heard from a lot of, a lot of publicists over the years, how annoying some of us writers are. <laughs> I was, I was wondering if you could give us a, you don't have to use anyone's name. He hasn't said podcasters yet. So we're still, we're still <laughs> well, podcasting still new and, uh, you know, people are, and I'm sure, oh, I know Larry's got some podcaster stories, <laughs> uh, but, um, give us a story. Uh, you know, I, I've heard of stories of writers like, uh, cashing in their, um, 
their plane tickets, you know, just doing things for samples. Give us, give us a story about a writer you've worked with over the years who just pissed you off or something. <laughs> um, and you don't have to use their name. Yeah, no, I, I don't know that too many of them piss me off. Um, I mean, I, 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 pride, I, I, I will say this. Most of the whiskey writers that have been over the years are fascinating people, great people. I, I, I haven't met many that I don't personally find interesting. I mean, they're interested in a lot of the same things I am. They're literate. They're intelligent, articulate people. I haven't met a whole lot of them that I really that really piss me off. Um, you, um, I, I'm trying to think. You know, I will say this, and I, you may have heard me say this story one time, and I won't use a name, but this was one of the most esteemed whiskey writers of all time who, who visited us in Bardstown one time, and he was on in years a little bit at that point, and he had been traveling a lot, I'm sure, and he sat down to interview Parker and I, and every time Parker and I looked over at him, his eyes were rolling back in his head and he was basically falling asleep during the interview. So <laughs> it was it was just a little strange that he'd come to interview us and seemed to be falling asleep while he was interviewing us. So I'll never forget after I finished, and actually I, I think I mentioned this in Parker's eulogy. Um, I remember it. He, uh, you know, the fellow leaves and he's a very, very well-regarded whiskey writer. And, and I said, well, Parker, what do you think? And Parker said, Something like he's a nice enough guy, but and he sure looks like he could use his oil changed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and as a typical Parker fashion, I said, "Yeah, you, that's pretty much." I agree with you there, Parker. He looked like he could have an oil change. So, no, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of a lot of the writers will, you know, some of the writers will try to be um, uh, kind of create some controversy. You ask ask questions that they think are provocative, but that's fine. I mean, I have no problems with that. I, you know, several writers I know have, have kind of, uh, former investigative journalism backgrounds. So that's yeah. kind of where they come from. Um, and you know, let's face it at the end of the day, there's a lot of cloak and dagger smoke and mirror bullshit that goes on in this business that probably you need to ask some questions, hard questions. And about. Heaven Hill gets to the center of that sometimes. Like when, uh, like one of the age statements are dropped and, you well, yeah, can, yeah. Guys, uh, sometimes you get in the middle of all. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. You can't help it. I mean, that kind of kind of kind of comes along with the territory of of you know people following you. So, um, but you know, I mean, I will say this: I, I I feel kind of proud that we've tried not to to be duplicitous when we do things. I mean, if we drop an age statement, we're not going to make up. I mean, we're dropping it. The reason we dropped the age statement on Elijah Craig was that we would have to reduce the amount of Elijah Craig that would have been available in the market over the next three or four years by a ridiculous amount. And that just didn't make sense to us. We said, we're going to, we're going to remove the age statement, keep it 10, 11, 12 years old, but this way we don't have to have 30% I mean, it just makes sense for us to do. Now, when we look at this, is where this is where, um, like now, now we're not we're talking we're not talking about writers here. We're talking about like the social media world, where we have all the cloaking dagger rumor mills and all that going on. What what I have found that comes up a lot with Heaven Hill is that there will be a lot of rumors surfacing around you all. And you'll have liquor store reps in, let's just say, Boise, Idaho, saying, oh, I heard they're going to be dropping their age statement. And then someone posts about it, states it as fact, and then um, it's denied by, by, by Bernie or Josh or yourself or just someone in the company. 
And then a year later it happens and everyone's like, see, you all denied it. And then you're doing it. And that you guys, that got that's where the little bit of the bad PR in the geek world, I think comes in for you all is that you, you sound like, you sound like Trump a little bit. Like we got to find the leak. <laughs> Who's the leak. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Look, I mean, Elijah Craig, if, if um, you know, Elijah Craig, I don't think, you know, by taking the age statement and moving to the back label, <laughs> I don't think anybody really had a whole lot of questions as to the fact that that was at least protecting us if we had to lose the age statement. So, um, so, I mean, you know. You know, you remember how hurt I was after that. I was hurt. I was hurt for so long because that was my that was my go to. Was my Elijah Craig, twelve year old. Talk about it. You, you, you I, I still tear up about it sometimes. But now, you know what? Couldn't I, get him out of the house. He was sitting there just eating snacks and alone in his underwear, yeah. just crying about it. <laughs> That's well, too much. Too much. <laughs> well, I mean, the interesting thing that I found um, with Elijah Craig, anyway, is that um, we we've just recently, well, recently in the past year or so started up our, our private barrel program on Elijah Craig again. And of course we had, you know, full barrel programs on everything way back, you know, a number of years ago and, and pulled back from this completely. And now we've, we've made Elijah Craig available again. And generally when we will do a private barrel selection of Elijah Craig, we'll pull 10, 11, 12 year old samples. And I can say this till I'm blue in the face and it probably will still never get me a whole lot of traction in the greater world. But more often than not, people will not pick a 12 year old. And it's yeah. not like we're stacking the deck there. Yeah. So, so, you know, I will say this: people tend to have a pretty strong knee jerk reaction. If we say, oh, my God, the age statement's been removed. We can tell them, and it's absolutely true, that it's still 10, 11, and 12-year-old whiskey, just like when we removed the age statement from Evan Williams Black many, many years ago. It was a seven-year age stated. Um, it remained five, six, and seven-year-old whiskey. So, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Taste the whiskey. I mean, it's still extremely good whiskey, um, and it's still, at a minimum, 10 years old. So, you know, I, I, look, uh, the Heaven Hill one, we probably could have done that a little better. I will tell you that just because I think we should have, we should have communicated that quicker. Yeah. Um, but, um, but look, you know, I mean, the nature of the beast in this business is you've got a very, very long sales pipeline here. You've got, it's a three tier system stuff moves through the pipeline at its own rate. And, um, and that's just one of the untidy things about the business. So I tasted, uh, one, one of the years, it was after the age statement had left and, uh, I'm judge at San Francisco World Spirits Competition. I have no idea what I'm tasting. And I come across one of the, one of the bourbons and I was like, oh, that's so good. That's like, I got to find out what this is. It didn't end up winning best bourbon, but for my, for that flight, it was like one of my, it was like one of my picks for top five to win the whole competition. And when we unveiled the, the, um, uh, the, towel or whatever was over it it was elijah craig small batch mm -hmm. and so that was my moment was like all right fine i'm finally over it you know so yeah look i mean and you make a great point there which is that you know <laughs> blind tastings that's where it's at i mean look you know, we all are biased we all bring bias into things in conscious or, or, yeah. or subconscious ways so we never fail to be amazed when we do blind tastings here, triangle tastings here. I mean, you just, you know, it, 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 it's, it lays it bare. So I do have one question. I kind of want to run it back to uh, probably the earlier days because 
this was also a time when Heaven Hill would release a lot of stuff to Japanese and export markets of some super high age stuff. Mm -hmm. And like one that always kind of came up that at least when I really started getting into this, I saw Martin Mills 24 year. And I'm, <laughs> oh, just, good and one. I'm, and I'm yeah. thinking of this. I was like, I was like, man, like I really want to try this one day. Now it's never probably going to happen, but kind of take us through those days of when you had this, this really old age whiskey and you had a market, but uh, but, you know, what was the thought of just everything export, why nothing domestic, anything like that? Or well, and, and about the brand themselves, because from what I what I understand, it was just some made up name that never really meant anything. Like, I don't really know. Martin, about yeah, well, I mean, some of these brands that that we use for export are actually old, real old brands. I mean, like Daniel Stewart, Martin Mills. I mean, th those are those are actually brands that preceded us that we we acquired from other companies at some point. So they're, they're actually fairly old brands. Um, but, you know, those types of, um, you know, the Evan Williams 23-year-old initially, which was only in Japan, and we had an Evan Williams 12-year-old red label. We had an Evan Williams maroon label 15-year-old that were also only for the uh, Japanese market. The bottom line with those was that that was a market that would pay a ton of money for super premium whiskeys when there was no super premium whiskey market here in the U.S. for all intents and purposes. So we, back in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, kind of created these labels. It's kind of like what Blanton's did. I mean, when the first single barrels came around, I mean, that was for the Japanese market because the Japanese and, you know, the Asian market in general, gifting and, you know, kind of the VSOP cognacs, the XOs, you know, the single malt scotches. This was an important category for status for gifting in a lot of cultures. And so Blanton's was kind of created as in, initially as as that type of a expression of American whiskey that they could kind of say was an XO cognac or a single malt scotch. Um, so similarly, uh, we would sell some fairly old whiskeys into Japan because the market would pay a tremendous amount of money for those brands. Um, I'll never forget, I actually was responding to an email from one of our sales reps who has got a, a club that's coming in and they're bringing a bunch of old Heaven Hill bottles with them. So he was asking me these information about, actually he asked me about Evan Williams 12-year-old and Evan Williams 23-year-old. And I, and I relayed a story, which I'll tell you now, which was, um, this was probably 15 years ago. Um, our sales rep for Europe at the time, who was based in London, came in and he brought with him a um, the whiskey menu, whiskey list from a really nice style bar in London that's still around, a very, very well-known um, uh, on-premise account. And they had... American, American whiskey section and they had prices for a one or two ounce pour and then for the whole bottle. Um, and uh, he brought it in with us and he said, somebody is either parallel shipping or Evan Williams blew 23 year old into the UK or somebody's just brought some bottles in and put them for sale at this bar. And we noticed that they were selling the bottle for 600 pounds. Um, wow. And I think at that moment, Max said, we're going to distribute this in the UK. So we started to ship some to the UK at that point. I also think we started to ship a little bit to La Maison du Whiskey in France. Um, and about three years after that, we opened up the Evan William, uh, the uh, Bourbon Heritage Center in Bardstown as our first uh, visitor center um, in conjunction with the, the, the reason we and basically everybody opened visitor centers at about the same time was they passed the souvenir 
um, they passed a law that basically allowed us to, to sample and sell product on premise, which was a game changer for all of us. So um, we uh, we in planning the the uh, Reverend Heritage Center, we wanted some really great special offerings that we could do that. So for the first time, we offered that Evan Williams, twenty three year old in the United States through that visitor center. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you know. Uh, those brands have now come back, like Blanton's. I mean, again, you know, Blanton's was originally only available in Japan. Everybody was like, hey, wait a minute, we'd like some of that too. And it started, came back here. And, and um, so we're seeing that now. That 12-year-old is now available. The 23-year-old we make available here is in limited quantities, obviously. But so to your point, those were brands that, that were first distributed internationally because there was demand there and there was um, the ability to, to really um, to maximize profit in those markets. They were willing to pay a tremendous amount of money for that aged whiskey. It was really good whiskey. So. As a brand manager, kind of talk about select. I mean, who, who is selecting the whiskey that's getting bottled and going into this stuff? Because I, I know that, you know, you have the opportunity to get some barrel samples and try this. Like how much influence do you as a brand manager have over what the the end product is actually going to be. I guess that depends on how good a palate you have. It's just not all brand managers or tasters at all. I mean, look, I mean, when we do things like that, we try and do them in a in a in as in as uh, qualitatively significant a way as we can. In other words, we have a group of people that that we know are pretty good tasters, and we generally, as a brand manager, believe me, I would never have the the audacity or the presumptuousness to say, I'm going to taste this and make any decisions about it. I mean, A, that was something that not only the master stiller, but we've got a group of people in the lab that are exceptional tasters. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm part of the team that tastes things. We've got a bunch of people that taste things, but, um, but it was always, um, it was always a democratic process. Um, You know, nobody's, I would say, the master distiller's opinion mattered more than everybody else's, <laughs> but it was never, uh, it was never really a, a kind of an oligarchy. It was always, um, it was always a pretty much a group, group decision. So. Speaking of groups, you were, you've been very instrumental in uh, the Kentucky Distillers Association. And um, during, you know, since you've been in the business, that, organization has kind of went from like just the good old boys hanging out network to really a dynamic you know getting shit done kind of group yeah i mean that's another good microcosm for the bourbon world i mean you're and you're exactly right when i first joined the company um the kda uh was was run by um an attorney former state senator in his spare time. He was the only one that did it. Um, Basically, the KDA was more concerned with technical issues, um, OSHA issues, ethyl carbamate, those types of things. There was no marketing function at all that was attached to the KDA at that time because there was no bourbon tourism to speak of. Bourbon was not, you know, at that time, it was really just starting to catch on. So um, one of the key things I think that actually happened there was the, the KDA decided to create a full-time role for a president and staff and change that from a technical, um, more technical-oriented trade association to a marketing governmental 
regulatory and um, uh, technical mm-hmm. group. So, again, I think that's in response to kind of the changes in bourbon. I, one of the things that I, again, a great example of how this bourbon the bourbon world has changed. And I would, I would, I've said this for years and years and everybody that works with me is probably sick of hearing it, but I noticed pretty early on in my career that the uh, government here in Kentucky did not treat the bourbon industry quite the same way, shall we say, that the wine industry was treated in California or even the beer industry was treated in, in Wisconsin or, or Missouri. Um, it was never a, a very supportive relationship. There was somewhat of an adversarial relationship there. That all started to change, not surprisingly, as the, the, the product started to really grow. Not just the product growing in terms of bottles and taxes that came from it, though that was clearly important. But I think it was the tourism side that really kind of opened a lot of people's eyes when in 99 we created the Bourbon Trail, KDA created the Bourbon Trail. All the, you know, the KDA, all it had to do was say, there is a Bourbon Trail. It's not like we marketed it at all. We, I think we produced a brochure, that was it. But at that time, again, and in, in looking at kind of how the, the Bourbon world was exploding, there was this huge desire for people to, again, to kind of do this pilgrimage to, to find out what their distillery was like and, and their, their master distiller was like. So um, so at that time, again, you know, the the the, the state legislature, all the, the, the local tourism uh, agencies and whatnot started to see that there was a tremendous upside here to to bourbon in terms of the ability to kind of draw people and keep people. So, you know, I'd like to tell you that that the KDA grew to where it was because we've been an incredibly smart organization. That I would say we have been not, we've been smart enough. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, the, the, the category has become so popular that that really has driven a lot of, um, what the KDA has become. And the KDA now is, uh, it's quite a, um, you know, kind of a, a mature trade association. We, we've, yeah. got, we've got a lot of people that cover government affairs. We've got events people. We've got, you know, a lot of people there that, that handle a lot of different things. So, I mean, in the Kentucky bourbon affair, you know, that's a pretty successful. Yeah. yeah. This was something that the kind of KDA had on our strategic list forever was, you know, kind of creating our own, um, industry event that, and I, I could talk about the bourbon affair. I just think it's totally cool because we, <laughs> we do these great kind of yeah, like inside cool. baseball things that, um, that you couldn't get anywhere else. So, um, so yeah, I mean, again, all these things to my mind really kind of underscore you know, at the end of the day, as the, as the, as bourbon has become so much more popular and has drawn attention dollars, mm-hmm. all that interest, um, it has led to all these things. It has given us a bully pulpit that has allowed us to, to start to kind of become more assertive in what we want. So it's led to things like um, the Souvenir Act that allows us to sell and sample. It's led to things like the Vintage Spirits Act. It's led to the ability for us to direct ship from visitor centers. So it's nice. I mean, I've seen in the 20 years that I've, you know, been involved in the business and been on the KDA, actually, it, it's it's about 180 degrees opposite. We are really able to get so much more done now than we were able to, and it's it's gratifying. Yeah. I think is kind of one way to sort of wrap this up is is kind of just think about the past of of how long you've 
you've been with inside of the, the bourbon and whiskey industry and, and the influence you've had on, as well as maybe the influence it's had on you. So as you're, you're getting ready to go off into retirement here, do you think that, that you'll be able to just kind of like leave bourbon and put it in your rear view mirror? Or is it always going to have some sort of special place in your heart? No, I mean, I, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, I would I would not be able to just walk away and not pay attention to it. I mean, I know too many people. I've spent too too much of my life. I'm too. We run into the grocery store at least once a month. That's right. So, or Chipotle or, or Chipotle some, or, or like that, right? <laughs> you know, this always happens. There's a big small town. So, um, but no, I, I mean, that's a good question. No, I mean, I'm always look. I mean, I've, I've invested a lot of my my you know working career in this business, and, and it's a fascinating business, and and and. I have a lot of friends in this business and so, um, and there's a lot going on in this business right now. So, um, so certainly, you know, I, I am going to be, I, I, I can't help it. I mean, you know, to a certain extent nowadays, even somebody that has no interest in bourbon gets exposed to what's going on in the bourbon world. And that's a good thing. Um, because there's just a lot going on and we're covered a lot, but, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm going to continue to, to kind of keep myself, um, keep a finger on the pulse of whatever Keep a finger on the pulse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's actually one thing I want to mention. Um, you know, I never get asked. I, I get when thinking about like an interview like this, I was like, what are the questions they're going to possibly ask me? And I prepared myself to ask, to answer this question. What's the proudest thing that you've, so ask me, what's the proudest thing that you've done? Fred, you've known him longer. I'm going to let you do the honor. What's the proudest thing? And then after that, tell us a Parker story. Well, there, this, so this is, this is one and the same. Um, when I was a Scotch brand manager, um, I loved, there was, there was one thing that I thought was totally cool about the scotch business. They had this product called Black Bottle. You ever heard of it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Black Bottle is something that was created from the Isla distilleries. At the time, there was maybe four of them. There's like 10 of them now. But the, the, the main Isla distilleries. And they created a product where all of them contributed some whiskey to it. And they blended it together. And it was an Isla bottling of all the single malts. So it was a blended whiskey by nature, but um, it's actually a pure malt because it was just a uh, blending of single malts. But um, but it was really cool. And when I went to Scotland and ended up in Isla, they sold it in the airport. And I mean, it was just a really cool way of saying this is like the industry. So forever I thought, how cool would it be if we managed somehow, somehow to get all the bourbon distilleries to put their product together in a bottle. This was not something that was going to be easily done. I can tell you that much. Um, that was clear to me. I mean, you know, nobody had any interest in doing anything. And I kind of brought this up a couple times throughout the years. Maybe this is something we could do for Bourbon Festival or for a Hall of Fame, something like that. And it just never seemed to be a whole lot of interest in doing it. When Parker was diagnosed with ALS um, and we, Parker and Linda, had said that they wanted to really rather than kind of go away and deal with it themselves which of course they they could well have done that they wanted to kind of make become a public face for it um one of the things that we wanted to do to to uh, you know we wanted to do some fundraising so at that point this was my chance i said this may be the one opportunity with Parker, the situation that Parker's in, where I can go to all the distilleries and say, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to give us some of your whiskey? Let us blend it all together. 
And I, I had no illusions about us being able to make this commercial product. I knew that wasn't going to happen. But I said, let's let's do this for a special auction and we can raise money for AOS um, for it. So we did that. And that became the Master Distillers Unity. And I I got to say, I, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that project because that was something where, you know, I contacted all the distillers, all of whom were friends, all of whom knew and loved Barker, explained to them what we were doing. And whereas I can tell you nobody in marketing or probably in management would have any interest in doing this, all the distillers said, yeah, we're in on that. We will do that. And we went around to all the distilleries. We actually filmed Parker, meeting them, getting the product. And it was just, it was a really wonderful experience for me because it was the whole industry coming together. It was a whole industry coming together to support Parker in a great cause. And I kind of used, you know, what had happened, what I saw at Black Bottle. I just thought it was such a cool thing. And I said, let's, here's our chance to do that. And we got it done in it. And I just, I was very cool. I was very, very proud of that. So That's a very awesome story. I wish it had yeah. sold for more. At auction, so what, did it, what did it go for? It went for about twelve thousand bucks. It was two bottles, beautiful. We got these incredible boxes donated, and and Glen Cairn Crystal. It was mm. just they were just beautiful. And you know, I, I thought it went for more than that. It and, should have gone for more I, than that. I remember covering it. <laughs> it should have gone for more than that. But but it was just it was it was you know to my mind it was a lot of what's great about the industry kind of yeah. in one little kind of exercise. So there's been a lot of that around Heaven Hill, and I know we've ran out of time, but this. Is Larry's the guy that, to me, is you know the way I was. He's going to retire soon. He might Steelers. not have shit else to do. We can probably get yeah. him on again. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think he's got another. He's got another act in him. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. But, uh, <laughs> Everybody seems be, to be convinced of that, but me. I don't know. He, he's going to be co-writing South Park or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a South Park fan. <laughs> But no, I, I, you know, for me, my first exposure of hearing these stories, it was, it was fascinating. Um, especially that last one with Parker, because I know you've had a close relationship with Parker as well and, yeah. and kind of wrapping it all together. It, it was a really good way to kind of close this out. So yeah. hopefully it's not the end. Maybe we'll, we will do one here in the, in the future. Like I said, you're going to retire. You're going to be bored soon. You got to find a hobby. So everybody keeps telling me that I, I remain unconvinced. But <laughs> we'll say. He's a diver. He likes diving. There you go. That's true. That's right. And plenty of vacations to, to go do that with. But again, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was fantastic. Um, you know, if anybody wants to learn more, I guess you just got to Google them now because this is probably one of the only times you're going to probably hear the, uh, a good story from from Larry for a, probably hopefully a little bit. Uh, or follow him on Facebook because he uh, he'll uh, spin a yarn there. there I'll you tell go. you that. You can do yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I tend to cover more of my my personal life than my my business life on Facebook. It, I went to Africa this summer, so I had a lot of fun. Kind my of God, the photos were gorgeous. Telling the stories about Africa in my Facebook post, but yeah. So. Oh, really cool. So. Make sure that you follow Bourbon Pursuit as well as Fred Minnick on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you do like the show, support it, patreon.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And uh, if you like to sit down and read a good magazine, flip through it. Uh, I heard people like actually looking at ads. Go get yourself a subscription to Bourbon Plus as well. Uh, people are really talking and moving and shaking with that one. But if you have any other show suggestions, th things you want to see, people you want to hear from, hate mail, fan mail, whatever it is, send us one, team at bourbonpursuit.com. And uh, if it's not too bad, we might respond back to you. But again, fellas, thank you for joining the show today. It was a pleasure. And we'll see everybody next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.